Hello, everyone, and good evening, and welcome to the TNT show, The Nation Talks. And as always, I guarantee you 60 exciting minutes, and this is no exception. I'm so glad you've joined us. And you know, it's been another great day for British democracy. We learned today from Sky News that Richard Sharp, who is the Chancellor's old boss at Goldman Sachs, is to be appointed the new BBC chairman. Of course, this is absolutely unconnected to the fact that he has made £400,000 in contributions to the Conservative Party. So now we have a situation, which I suspect could only happen in the UK, where the BBC chairman and the BBC chief executive will both be prominent Conservatives. Who knew? Also, in unconnected news, the New York Times today describes the British ruling class as mendacious and intellectually limited hustlers. Who could possibly argue with that, perhaps? So thanks for joining us. We're delighted that you're here. As I said before, we have another great guest this evening, and I'm really excited that he's able to be with us. Tonight, the TNT show welcomes Professor Murray Pittock. Now, Murray is Vice Principal at Glasgow University, and if, like me, you believe that education is key to a successful country, then tonight is a real and rare opportunity to hear from somebody who really knows what education is all about. The TNT show, of course, is The Nation Talks. So this is very much your show as much as anyone else's. We do want to hear from you. We'll try and take as many questions as we possibly can. Now to our guest. Tonight, The Nation Talks to Murray Pittock. How are you, Murray? How are you coping with the pandemic? Oh, I'm absolutely fine, John. I mean, I have to say, uh, luckier than a, uh, luckier than a lot of people. So, I mean, I don't have young children at home. That's one thing. As I was saying to you, to you earlier, my daughters uh, actually made a bar for me at Christmas so that I can have a pub at home. Uh, so it's still there. It's called Easy Mongo's, and it's and it's next door. So I mean, that start gives me an evening in the pub without actually contributing me any guidelines, and actually the drinks cheaper too. Yeah, well, daughters are, are, are known for being uh, sympathetic to fathers and understanding their needs. Absolutely, in that case, very much so. I have to say, I'm really, I'm really enjoying uh, these few days of weather we're getting with, with the rain off and the sun in the sky for its six or seven hours, because it makes a huge difference. And it's also very much the kind of uh, weather I had when I was uh, a child growing up beside the River Dee in Aberdeen. So, I mean, it's, it's, as an East Coaster, I really, this is my kind of weather. I just absolutely, I, I love it and I couldn't get, couldn't get enough of it. Tell us all about growing up in Aberdeen. What was, what was your family life like? Uh, brothers, sisters? How did it work for you? Are. So there we are. So, I mean, it was, uh, uh, you know, I was um, uh, uh, grew, growing up myself. But my first experience, my parents both worked at the university, so they had reasonably flexible hours. My first experience of education was uh, at St. Peter's Nursery when I was three. And then I got a very big shift because I went up the, the road to uh, a primary school in King Court. Uh, that, you know, the, the, uh, the big scheme on the edge of the city. And I was there till uh, I was about 11 and then went to, on to Aberdeen Grammar School. So school right through in Aberdeen. And, you know, I met some great people there and there was some real innovations one of the things that Aberdeen, you know, I did quite a bit was uh, children's theatre, and that was a uh, that was although they, they spread out uh, with uh, with Aberdeen, that was actually an innovation carried out first of all in Aberdeen in the 1950s, and that was hugely important. Like debating, which I might you know come on to in terms of education experience 
a wee bit later. I think it gives people a new a, a sense of confidence. It gives people a sense of horizon. It gets people mixing with each other on a on a joint project, and you know, learning those kind of skills of you know, teamwork and so on, which have become a cliche. And I'm still really you know good friends with two or three of the great people that you know that uh, I met through that uh, Kenny Luke and Ed Steele and so on. Um, they're lovely. They're 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 lovely people. But the thing about that was, it was one of the first things that taught me about the importance of horizons. And I think having a high horizon is something that people, because of background and circumstance, and maybe you know you know native boldness or not having native boldness, and that's maybe a Scottish issue too. Yeah. Uh, actually, they don't act, they don't give themselves the kind of horizon they could. And that's all. That's been my uh, you know my guiding mission throughout life is to change people's horizons and really help them to be it's it's a cliche but it's so true to be the best they can be not because anybody can be anything but you can be whatever you want because you can't but because actually almost everybody can lift their horizon and when you lift the hor your horizon you transform what you can see where you stand who you can meet and what you can become i think that's terribly terribly important uh, I, I remember, uh, uh, for various reasons, I ended up spending a year in the States. And that's one of the first things I noticed was the cultural difference. I come from an educational system, uh, which was highly commendable in many respects, but it did have a certain mentality about sit up and shut up. You're here to learn. I found that in the States, uh, it was very different uh, from the time that I met the head teacher who, who rejoiced in the name of Bob Funk. Uh, we, we, we took our uh, took our son to, to to the local school. We were we were advised to seek out Bob Funk, and Bob turned out to be a terribly pleasant guy. But what struck me very forcibly about pretty much everyone we met was they were incredibly positive, regardless of their background, experience, uh, their financial situation. Everyone sort of looked to the horizon. They didn't look at their feet. They looked ahead. To see, and it was—it was all. I mean, it, it's very much a cultural thing. It wasn't as if they—they they learned this at school so much as that the school was part and parcel of that mentality. And, and also, what struck me you know, uh, very forcibly was I once went to a, a, a local politician here many years ago who, who was standing for uh, this area. Uh, I, I, he was a, a Labour MP at that time, and I asked him, "What, what is your purpose tonight? What is your main theme? If, if you can just reduce it to a sentence." And he said, listen to this, he said, my job is to lower expectations. Isn't that the most shocking thing you've ever heard? But it can be so true. And, you know, it's, I mean, there's a good side to that kind of the, the proverbial Scots equality, car the feet for that big bastard. But, but there's a really bad side too. And, you know, I remember I, 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 years ago I had a student and she'd come to university as a mature student. Her last day at primary school, she'd been told, uh, that she could get to university. She was regarded as one of the brightest kids in the school. And she came home and said that really proudly to her father. And he said, the only thing you'll do in university at Hen is clean the flares. And it's just, for a girl of her 10 or 11, up to her father, it's just terrible. Yeah. But that's what you get when you lower expectations. Exactly, exactly. And it's very sad. So, so you've taken the view, you look to the horizon, you... I assume you challenge people as well as yourself uh, because you yeah. want to get the best out of yourself and out of them. I, I take it that's one cornerstone of your approach to education. It is. And also, you know, it's uh, to, de to developing people and stuff, 
you know, and staff generally. So at every level, people can always can always do more. You know, if you are not de- if you are not developing, you are sliding backwards. You know, life goes on, and if you yeah. don't want it to be repetition, if you want any improvement, you've got to do something about it all the time. And yeah. uh, you know, I, I guess that is that is a lesson better understood in the United States and in East Asia than than it always is it always is here. But yeah. you know, you you one of the thing that the things about Horizons is you learn most of what you learn from other people. And that's one yeah. of the difficulties in the present situation that you can't, you can't learn. Uh, I mean, it's, it's great to be here and we're getting a lot out. Uh, we'll get a lot out of it. You can't learn everything you can learn from other people by, by zoom because, you know, people are a presence as well as a virtual exist uh, as well as a virtual presence. They're a real presence. But um, again, that's one of the important things about, I mean, I, about performance. And I started with theater and I was going to go on to, to mention debating, so when I, I mean, when I left to go to University of Glasgow, which was in um, the end of the 1970s, uh, you know, I got really into debating, uh, and uh, that was very important to important to me. And also, there I met um, Charles Kennedy, Liam Fox, uh, you know, group, group, and several other people who've uh, went on to uh, to make a name for themselves, as well as actually encountering for the first time from a previous generation like you know Ming Campbell and Donald Dewar in uh, the uh, in the debates and again you learn a lot from those people and not just from what they kind of from what they say but you learn the, you learn a lot from the way they interact Charles Kelly was one of the two most skillful student politicians I ever knew and the other one I came to when I went to do, when I went down south to to Oxford and so I was debating partners with a guy, you know, you may have heard of him, but, you know, don't, don't worry if you haven't, uh, but he called Boris Johnson. And he is, uh, he is also, with Charles, the best student politician I ever knew. I learned a good deal, certainly from Charles, and I learned other things from Boris. I'll just give you one. Everybody deserves a genuine Boris Johnson anecdote, so here's one. So I was in a debate uh, in Oxford in the 1986 he was president of the union at that time, and he came up to me afterwards, and we'd won. You know, it was unusual. We're not expected to win because student opinion was generally in the other direction. So, um, so he said to me, that was what wonderful speech, Mark. Absolutely wonderful speech. You know, there's just one thing I'd really advise you to avoid in the future. And I said, what's that? He said, you sound as if you meant it. <laughs> <laughs> My, he was a cynic back then. <laughs> he certainly was. Cheerful cynic, cynic. <laughs> any other thoughts that he left you with, having had that? Uh, did, did you spend any more time with him than just that passing epithet, or did you actually spend? Did you actually debate with him? Oh yeah, well, we were debating partners, and we won the Oxford oh. Championship together. yeah. So I did spend you know a bit of time because he was in my college as well. So um, uh, I mean, I wasn't in, I wasn't in the inner circle or anything. It's very it's very socially graded, and uh, I had not gone to the you know, the kind of school had the kind of background to be in the circle. But uh, I knew him I, I knew him pretty well, and he was very very shrewd. You weren't allowed to canvass in student elections there, but one of the things he did was actually uh, employ a pollster, which you could do because nobody had ever thought of that. So he had a running poll for uh, the hot spots. And cold spots and his support right across the university, and he was able to, uh, you know, to spend a lot of time with the cold spots and heat them up a bit. 
So it was kind of instant focus groups. And that for somebody who was 19 or 20, that was really smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's very typical of American uh, politicians at all levels. I mean, I, I'm reading Obama's book just now. His, I think it's the first part of his two-volume biography. And he talks a lot about the fact that, you know, he was introduced to pollsters fairly early on. And, uh, but he made it sound as if, oh, look, I really missed out on my education. <laughs> it is an education because that actually the guy Boris used, Frank Luntz, went on to be quite a big Republican pollster in the US. So it was absolutely, it was very much that, that culture. And, you know, if you've got enough, if you've, you know, in terms of U.S. polling, if you've got enough money, goodness, goodness, how you can segment the details and focus in on them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think the the last election in the States, bar one, in which Donald Trump was elected, showed that that there's a lot that can be done through social media and big data and crunching data in a way that you can isolate individuals so that if you and I live next door to each other, I get the message that I should vote Trump because he's fairly left. And you get the message that you should vote Trump because he's fairly right. And it's carefully delivered to us, specifically targeted. So people vote for somebody for a whole raft of reasons, which are not ideological necessarily. It's disturbing, frankly. It absolutely is. And I, I, I wonder just how, sh- how sharp they are. Because I had one in 2016, I had dinner beside the Trump state headquarters in South Carolina. And after that, I've received, uh, it's only just dried up, thankfully. I keep on, kept on receiving emails from the Trump campaign. <laughs> so I have no idea how they got it, whether they, whether they bought the credit card details of the, <laughs> of the restaurant in South Carolina. I have no idea. But anyway, I got on the list. Yeah. I think that's the whole point of a big data, though. You, you don't know exactly. the trail that you've left behind. Yeah. Uh, but others do because they buy it. Yeah. And then they buy access to your Facebook page or Twitter or whatever, whatever social media is big in your life. And then they, they, they sort of feed these lines, highly, highly specified, partial, perhaps, information, enough to manipulate you into thinking, gracious, this is, this is, I need to do something about this. But maybe things will change now. I, I'm, I don't know about Joe Biden. I assume he got elected the same way with a lot of polling going on in the background. I'd be astonished if that weren't the case. Oh, I think so. And he didn't, he didn't ignore Pennsylvania and so on. I mean, I think they, one of the issues of the Clinton campaign was they just took the Rust Belt, the Rust Belt states folks for granted. Yeah. So they, they, they had some holes in their polling in their, or in the way that they applied themselves to the evidence of their polling. Yeah, yeah. So, I was struck too by uh, watching a guy called, I think, Rob Shorthouse talking about how he won the 2014 referendum for no he produced this video and he said that was entirely based upon the polling they were doing, which showed that yes went ahead. But the, the weaknesses in the, in the yes message were the following. And we, we specifically addressed those because I, I just wondered how much polling was done on the yes side. Uh, I, I don't know. I think, I think that um, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of understandable focus on Sterling, uh, a bit less on... Europe, I mean, the evidence that certainly I've seen suggests that although 45% of Polish Scots voted for the SNP in 2011, only about a third of them voted yes, because they thought they would have to, there was a risk Scotland would leave the EU in the event of independence. So I think that wasn't perhaps focused on as much as it could be. But I think the standout 
was pensions. I think that that was, that was I mean, obviously that was to the core uh, no vote market because it's like, like Brexit, it's a demographic vote, but there was very little reassurance formally in terms of repeating a very solid message on the yes side about yeah, like that. Yeah. And also, and again, this is a lesson from US politics, it seems to me, there was almost no negativity on the yes side. And, and I think that left me with the impression anyway that uh, the yes was, was a one-club golfer. <laughs> it was all resolutely positive in an environment which was very mixed. And I think if that is the case, you tend to lose because people are accustomed to hearing plus and minus. And I think you have to sort of perhaps uh, respond to that uh, in a meaningful way. I think, that, I think that's right. But of course, <sighs> there are some unanticipated things that came out of yes losing, one of which was the enormous dividend for the uh, SNP in Scotland on the back of Labour lining up so straightforwardly with the Tories in 2014. Yeah. I mean, it's so obvious what you need to do. You need to say, um, we've got a different offer. We can call it federalism, though nobody knows what that is. Uh, well, I mean, I, well, they do know what it is, but they certainly wouldn't want it if they did. Um, and uh, <laughs> you, but you, anyway, you, you, you have a different offer. You say, vote Labour in the 2015 general election, you'll get the offer. Don't vote yet, no now, but don't vote. But the Tories aren't doing anything positive for Scotland, vote Labour. That was the, you know, it's so obvious. You don't yeah. have to be an ace strategist, you just have to have any sense. And yeah. actually fronting a Tory campaign has done them nothing but harm. Yeah, uh, that was a classic mistake. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But, uh, they, they intent on repeating it. Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah, yeah. It, it is very, very odd. You know, in this show, I talk to people on all sides of the constitutional question. And in talking to some people on the non-independence uh, perspective, their response to me is, well, we're not unionists. We, we rather resent people being describing us as unionists because we're actually home rulers. We, we, we don't accept that we're unionists. We're home rulers. Uh, and uh, how does that work? Well, it's called federalism. It's dead easy. They do it in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. And I go on to point out, uh, and I think you have done too, uh, more eloquently, I have to say, that uh, constitutionally, it's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's a mayor's nest in the UK. You have to persuade somebody who doesn't want something that it's hugely desirable. Uh, that is to say to Westminster, I know you have no appetite for this, but you've got to do it for some greater purpose to keep the Scots happy. And oh. I can't for the life of me think that that's going to happen. But. No, all the, de- all the debates we are now having that were had in Ireland in the 1880s and 90s, the end of the discussions was very similar. A.V. Dicey in 1886 made the same arguments about uh, devolution being a lopsided constitutional settlement uh, as had been around since the 1970s. The West Lothian question was no- is not new. It was asked in 1886. Um, and the point about federalism is that federalism means that powers are entrenched. And the whole point of Westminster is that it's that the sovereignty of Parliament is absolute and illimitable, and entrenched powers and an illimitable sovereignty do not mix. That's the end. So yeah. I, I think I mean I get very bored of federalism because I, I hear people who would kind of like things not to be easier than they are, saying, "Oh well, this is the solution." Fewer now than once. People are kind of giving up. They realize that they get, this game's a bogey. But for so long, there were people who kind of wished that it would all be easy and that a big gift would come, you know, saying, you know, love uh, the United Kingdom to Scotland. We care. 
And in it would be a lovely constitutional settlement which would enable us to do everything we wanted uh, except to make nasty decisions about foreign policy and, put, uh, and, and make our own way in the world, which would be the most terrifying ones. And so would, would be, would be uh, well to avoid if we were going to be scaredy and want not to get above ourselves. Uh, yeah. And we've been saying a lot of people don't get above themselves. And, you know, I, th- I think that that's running out, that's getting exhausted because people don't believe it anymore. But I actually think there was something wrong with it. I'll be bold enough to go and say that, which is that when you talk about horizons, how you are in the world, how you're perceived in the world, and what you do in the world is a fundamental part of who you are as a country, because yeah. all sovereignty is, sorry, um, any Leave voters listening, all, all sovereignty is uh, relational and yeah. conditional, and that's, that's its nature. So you don't actually find out who you are until you interact with other people in the, sa- in the same way. That's what being a normal country is. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, and also, uh, I mean, you, you've had a great deal of experience, Murray, in, in, in other countries. Uh, so you have a, a real sense of how Scotland is viewed elsewhere. Tell us what that is and tell us why that's important. From the beginning, uh, you know, from many years ago, I've been conscious that Scotland is celebrated across the world. Um, I mean, you don't get, want to get this out of proportion. People don't spend all their days thinking about Scotland. But if you were to look at the evidence as it's presented in the annual Anhalt GFK Roper uh, Survey of National Brands, which has been commissioned by the Scottish government since 2008, um, which has 50 countries in it, Scotland ranks about 15th in terms of perception. Um, the top country usually, and I'm, I'm taking figures now, which may be a couple of years out of date, but this is normally the, the, way, the way it breaks down, who recognise Scotland having an independent national culture. That's most recognised in Russia, where it's about 82%. And really? it's recognised in France, where it's 43%, um, which despite the old alliance and all the rest of it, it's, France is the one which at least recognises Scotland. But across the, the, the Pacific Rim, it's you know, 60 to 70, fairly regularly. And it's, you know, it's about two thirds in Poland, places like that. So there's a lot of recognition. And uh, of course, as people know, there are Caledonian societies, Caledonian games, Caledonian festivals everywhere. We show a a lack of interest in, for example, the 10 or 20,000 strong festivals, which they're quite a number across continental Europe, which celebrate Scotland and Scottishness every year. And actually, one of the things that's bothered me, you know, is the, the dis- distaste showed by some uh, kind of Scottish cultural gurus and historians and so on for the situation in the United States and you know, things like Kirking the Tart and sneering that's inauthentic. You know, in Dublin, nobody has any problem with plastic leprechauns on St. Patrick's <laughs> Day. Being pitch is being confident. It's not actually yeah. being weak. You, if you understand your brand, uh, then you can manipulate it. And, and, you know, that may sound horrible and lacking in integrity, but actually it's one of the ways in which we negotiate reality. Um, yeah. so, uh, and all countries do. We're really lucky we've got a great global brand. The interesting is that it's actually rooted in the Romantic period. It's rooted in uh, castles, history, the supernatural, the landscape, pipes, talk, you know, people know that brand. And if you look at what people understand about Scotland's science, Scotland isn't ranked in the top 20 countries for science. 
that actually after, per capita, after Switzerland, it's the second most cited country in the world for science. Yeah. So that actually, you know, there are a lot of things, I and mean, I did, did a, a briefing for the external affairs uh, uh, department, Scottish government there away day in 2018, and I've had a lot of connection with them over the years in this and other spheres, that actually the, one of the great opportunities of promoting Scotland abroad and getting people on side is understanding the gap, what your brand is now, understanding the gap about how you can promote what your brand could be, yeah. uh, you know, a modern country, technology based on, renew- based on renewables, fine with the tourism and all the things that people want to, people want and expect to see when they visit Scotland, and, how, and, and uh, how you could help bridge the gulf between the two. If yeah. Just to take one example, nine and a half million people a year attend barn suppers worldwide. And I've been to a lot of big barn suppers across the world where there are big selling opportunities for Scottish produce. Yeah. But often they, yeah, it's much better now than it was. But, you know, a few years ago, often there was kind of no engagement and, and no interest. And now the Department of International Trade, the UK government, have really taken up barns. Uh, so they're aware of it. And, and so are we. But, um, you know, I did this report to the Scottish government on Robert Burns' The Scottish Economy. Uh, which was uh, debated at Holyrood uh, a year ago now in January, and that suggested that, that Burns Burns alone is worth two hundred million uh, plus around one hundred and forty million embedded brand value. To My, um, and that's in an undeveloped situation. The whole area, yeah. like Dumfries and Galloway, which is changing now, but which actually didn't know why people visited it, kind of yeah. useful, to, really useful to know why people visit you. <laughs> um, uh, and there is a lot more potential, not just in yeah. Burns, but in other, in other areas of uh, cultural tourism too, because of course, you know, tourism is an absolutely huge industry in normal times for Scotland's GDP per capita. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I remember fairly vividly being in Chicago on St. Patrick's Day uh, and they poured green stuff into the... <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> into, the, into the river. Embrace it. <laughs> and you, absolutely. And you think, why? And the answer was, why not? Exactly. So in the one hand, you've got, you know, Smart Dublin, the huge um, Internet of Things initiative that's going on in Dublin now, including a one billion euro uh, business and technology campus run by Trinity College Dublin. State of the art stuff. I mean, I, I did a, a, a summit on the creative economy in Glasgow and Dublin there two, uh, two years ago. Brilliant, brilliant place. And at the same time, you've got the confidence to, you know, embrace, you know, Pouring, away, pouring green liquid away on St. Patrick's Day, because that is confidence. It is confident to be yeah. able to, to, to wear your own kitsch and not to grumble about it or complain or say, we're all you know, victims of our own myths and all this sort of thing. Yeah, I, I sometimes we're, we're a bit too introspective uh, and, not, and not, we don't exactly. project as much as we ought. Horizon, absolutely. I what couldn't agree more. Us, so much more important in so many ways than what we think of ourselves. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Glasgow University. Maybe we, if we've got time, we can come back to uh, some of that previous discussion, uh, Murray. What is your job like? As I, I described you as vice principal. What, what is a vice principal? What, what's it you do? What does your job entail? First of all, I'm pro-vice principal. So a vice principal just generally, generally has a, 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 a brief. So I was either a brief of... Uh, line managing part of the university, yeah, uh, and so 
for a few years, I was one of the university's uh, five main budget holders and was vice principal in charge of arts. So either that kind of brief or a thematic brief, cross-cutting. It's a matrix system, you know, and, uh, uh, so cross-cutting brief about the whole of research across the university. And there are obvious points of intersection. And you could say, you know, that there are different ways of doing it, but the aim there is to ensure in a very complex organization that, that very little falls through the gaps. And you can do quite a lot. I mean, one of the things I was, you know, really, really pleased about uh, was uh, in the that that job in art in the on the art side was ensuring the we got the agreement across Scotland to found the first national graduate school in arts and humanities in Scotland, mm-hmm. which we still have, which is uh, which has attracted an awful lot of funding, an awful lot of students, and has got now more than a hundred industry partners. So that's really important. In the terms of the job I'm currently doing, what's it like on a day-to-day basis? Well, uh, um, it is a very varied job. I think that's one way of putting it. So one of the things that, among the things that I'm, uh, I've done is chair the Kelvin Hall development from right. the university's side, which obviously the first part of which opened five years ago and uh, you know, they won quite a few or was nominated for quite a few prizes when it opened. I got a million visitors in the first year. I mean, obviously visitors died dropped down after that. And of course, they're very, they've been very low in the last year for all the obvious reasons. But the interesting there is that was, uh, that was part of bringing together the, the Hunterian Museum's Research Centre with sport yeah. and, with, uh, and with the National Library for Scotland, actually the, the, the Scottish um, uh, hub of the UK Sound Archive and also Scottish screen, the Scottish Screen Archive. And the point you know, it's about horizon and about and about doing different things together. So the point that you could actually have five-year-olds playing table tennis in the same building as tea dancers and the same building as people working on the composition of pigments in 17th century paintings, and that sometimes these were the same people. That, yeah. I think, is one of the things that I really, really pleased with in terms of the phase one of Kelvin Hall. I mean, I haven't been able to do uh, because of the uh, you know various financial constraints, phase two yet, but really bringing people together and giving them new horizons has been tremendous. And one of the other things I do, and I, I, I mean I do quite a lot with ex, with building external partnerships with the university, and particularly uh, I mean I, I mentioned our, uh, I mentioned Ireland already, so we haven't again interrupted, but quite a lot of good partnership discussions with institutions and bodies in Ireland, including University College Dublin in the last year, 18 months. And I also run the university's early career development program. So that's more than 500 staff in yeah. their first few years. And again, that's fundamentally you know, all the way up to the promotion to senior lecturer, which is supposed to happen from eight years from when they're first appointed. Um, and so basically it's a program. It's got a lot of support. It's got high expectations, uh, but people meet the expectations and it is all about raising the expectations people have got so that um, without, without stretching or pushing very able people too much, you give them the environment to thrive in and you give them challenges. And yeah. they really have to be that, – that was program was initiated um, eight years ago by Andrea Nolan, who's now principal at Napier. And yeah. um, it's, 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 it's brilliant in terms yeah. of what it's done for, for the institution and yeah. for the careers of the people who um, who have been pursuing it, so very very strongly developmental. I, you know, I did w- I, I want to stress that 
as other as with other themes the, that theme throughout rather in its different yeah. manifestations so that's uh, i also do a lot of research and projects but that's what i do on the on the kind of the, most of the day job side yeah so i mean there must be some special uh, challenges when it comes to covid i mean you've got all of these students uh, 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 we we interviewed a student earlier sophie johnson yeah. who's at Glasgow University, and she, she was in halls of residence, and she spoke about the particular challenges that they had, not so much from the local kids, but people who travel from overseas. Absolutely. You know, I mean, how do you cope with all of that? It was very difficult right in Octo- October. We, we, we moved some of the start, date into, start dates into January. So, I mean, it hasn't helped much, as it turns out, but I mean, we thought it might, or, you know, things sure. might have got better. Um, uh, and there were some uh, there were some issues with infection and, and people going into self isolation in the, the beginning of the September October term. You know that's uh, um, that's as it were calmed down a good deal. And one of the interesting things I think we're finding is that people do want to be in residence. I mean, people have the have the yeah. ability to to yeah. learn remotely. Yeah. But you know, once again, when I when I go back to what I said about about meeting people and. <laughs> You know, university is not an experience you can entirely replicate online. Actually, teaching is easier to do online than a lot of it, but uh, not that it's, it's been a big challenge for people who've, you know, really, really pulled the stops out to do as well as they possibly could delivering it. So I'm not saying it's easy, but you can't replicate meeting your peers and learning yeah. from them. You can't replicate it. Yeah. So no. there's no surprise to me people do want to be in residence, even, even though there's yeah. not a lot they can do when they get here. Yeah, and particularly at that age. Absolutely. I mean, it's the very age, seems to me, Murray, where you want to interact with your peers, where you, you want to be challenged, you want people to contradict you. I mean, that's the growing experience, it seems to me. Exactly. And, and to do that with people from a whole range of yeah. different backgrounds. And, you know, a university is particularly, you know, a big, a big major research university is a particularly good place to do that because people want to come from yeah. all over the world. And, uh, you know, that makes a huge difference to, their, to you, you, the experience people have there. So in terms of the student population at Glasgow, is that, is that somebody once told me there was a very high proportion or a high proportion of people from China. Is that, is that the case? That, that is right, yes. I mean, it is, it's a, I mean, I wouldn't like to go to the stake on the statistic, but it's about 15% these days. Yeah, yeah. And does, it, does the university very much depend on the income that these students bring or generate? I think, uh, you know, overseas students generally uh, are a very important source of, uh, of um, funding for universities to be able to do what they do do, because obviously, uh, you know, in England, um, anyone who's paying, talking in normal times now, anyone who's paying £9,250 fees for a history degree that is a significant degree uh, amount more than anyone will, who's, will be reimbursed by the Scottish government for <laughs> you know, teaching a home student in Scotland. So they get. So in other words, uh, um, we don't make. We, we do not. Uh, uh, um, we we couldn't accumulate money to improve buildings and facilities, to stock libraries, and to provide uh, things for students. From the uh, from the formula funding we get for home students, Got it. and that's that's a general issue in for universities generally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've had a particular question, which I'm going to read because I'm not sure 
the, the technicality of it immediately jumps out at me, but it, to, to the degree that it ought to, to be meaningful. Somebody has written in to say, last year in this academic year is extremely challenging for University of Glasgow students, in particular for junior and senior honour students. Why has the no detriment policy been removed? Surely during a pandemic, students need as much support and understanding as they can from the university. I'm not aware of that, but I'm not, I don't think I can comment on it, I'm afraid, John. What is the no detriment policy? Well, it's um, the no detriment is a where you don't actually suffer and your worst mark can be lost. I mean, your worst mark can be taken off, it's that kind of thing. So you don't, you, you don't suffer, basically. Yeah. From uh, you know, from a particular a particularly bad uh, outcome in one area, but as I say, this is definitely not my definitely not my specialism. So I'm not the right person to uh, to answer that question. Okay. Well, moving on, as they say, Dee Rose has uh, submitted a question. She said, "How does Murray see a future no campaign being organised? Does he suspect Better Together would be headed by Gordon Brown, or does he think each party will field its own campaign, unlike last time?" Uh, I, I would be surprised. I mean, we were talking, uh, this is on the expectation there will be an independence referendum, obviously. Um, if there is such a referendum, I would be surprised if, they, if there was anything other than a single Better Together offer as last time, because the no side or, or the Remain in the Union side, whatever you call it, will be extremely concerned at the prospect of losing and they will not want to, they will not want to run a divided front. I've got a long enough memory, it's sad to say, that yeah, I remember in 1979, the fragmentation of the yes side in the devolution campaign uh, compared to the unity of the no side helped to lower the vote in favour of devolution in 79. So I think, uh, although I don't think that a lot of political practice in today's UK takes enough account of the lessons of political history, I think that's one thing that won't be replicated and there will be a unified campaign. Would Gordon Brown front it? Who knows? I mean, he is the greatest living Scottish statesman and so quite possibly. It may well be that he would then be confronted with all these vows that haven't quite been fulfilled, which might make life difficult. But but, but who will report the vows? Yeah, and they're not being fulfilled. Um, I mean, it's a bit like, and I, you know, was involved in in going over uh, this in discussion with the Scottish government, the white paper leading to the Internal Markets Bill. There are some horrors in the Internal Markets Bill, and they haven't really gone away, even with some of the, the clauses being taken out and a lot of the horrors around frameworks and governance, but also um, people don't report it and they don't make an issue of it on the news. It's very difficult to get that on the agenda. That's been on the agenda in social media and nowhere else, but it's yeah. incredibly important to the future of the devolved settlement, let alone independence. Yeah. Well, maybe what we ought to be doing here on TNT is maybe devoting an entire show to the internal market bill and its consequences or possible consequences. Because I agree with you. I mean, the small contact I've had with people who have taken some time to look through some of its uh, interesting chapters uh, suggests to me that uh, it's a recasting of the entire constitutional connection that Scotland has with the rest of the UK and done without consultation, done without any sort of debate or, or any, any such thing. It's really smart in that in some many, in, with the, the sleight of hand it has in so many ways. One of the, the ways is does it, it acknowledges that Scottish law is protected by the Union of 1707, but it doesn't acknowledge that Scottish law ever created a legal framework which could protect any other body apart from Scottish law itself 
And yet, of course, the jurisdiction of a country is central to its reg regulation, organizations, and so on. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, the, the EIS got up in arms because they realized it wouldn't, you know, that there wouldn't be um, any Scottish veto over teaching qualifications uh, in Scottish schools under the, uh, under the IMB. So it was clever because it said we, it, it paid lip service to the union settlement of 1707, but it did so by pretending that law was just about law and not about a, a jurisdiction and the regulations and, uh, and secondary effects that law has in the governance of a country. And is there anything in the internal market bill that you came across that would impact universities and the way they're governed? Well, I think that no, there uh, there absolutely is. I mean, there are in term there are in terms of uh, fees. Uh, there are, in, I mean, it's you know, it's a moot point whether Scottish uh, Scottish universities would be able to offer free tuition with the uh, uh, the full with the full impact of the internal markets bill because that would be discrimination within. The UK market yeah. it might be solved by certain forms of the common fr common frameworks. But as I said, the governance for this, uh, for what for disputes in the IMB, is really elusive. It's a bit it's a bit like you know the governance about what happens in the Brexit deal. You know, it's which actually is arbitration is mentioned and going back to negotiation is mentioned, but there's no sense of what uh, uh, all the governance seems to be reduced to politics. And it is fundamentally the same way in the I, in the IMB as uh, as well. So yeah, it could have a real effect on Scottish universities, depending how it's implemented. I take it there would be no there's no consultative process. I mean, the, the IMB simply says this is a decision for a minister of the crown. Um, it's interesting in the 1920 Government of Ireland Act, the Exchequer Board, which then went on to to work with Northern Ireland, which was about not having a diff most of Ireland became the Free State actually had a named membership which included parliamentary representatives, um, expert representatives, and a non-political chair. That was all specified in the Act. doesn't happen in the IMB. It doesn't say it'll be a Minister of the Crown, but it doesn't very clearly say it won't. So I, my advice is always, you know, don't expect any nice surprises. And, uh, and I think that that would at least be held in reserve if a common framework cannot be agreed. It's by no means clear that the IMB will be used because it will cause a political storm in all the areas where it could be used. But the very fact it's held in reverse, in reserve, so uh, rather like the fact that the citizenship exam now has uh, a, a bit saying that the, the devolved parliaments are solely a creation of Westminster, uh, which didn't used to be in the citizenship uh, exam. These are all indicators that actually... Um, the, the the old saw power devolved as power attained mm. is actually for the first time going to be implemented at least to some extent and when the Scottish government gets too troublesome British government this all sounds like some sort of extreme form of uh, what's the old term rough wooing it's a sort of it's a sort of yes, yeah. and when I talk to conservative commentators they, they deplore this. this this is not simply deplored by people who take an enlightened view a progressive view it's it's deplored by people who are conservatives they tell me they say this is shocking why are they doing this they don't understand it this is as it were a, a part of a trajectory so I mean I don't I mean I haven't really talked about some of the you know research that I've done over the years which I guess more than administering universities is why we're here tonight but bluntly 
Scotland had a national self which it was able to project abroad during the British Empire. Scottish unionism, the kind of tradition represented by Buchan, which ended with the merger with the Conservative Party in 1965, I have to keep on telling people that, you know, I remember, you know, actually the Conservatives didn't get a majority in Scotland in 1955. It was the unionists, including the Liberal unionists, not the Conservative Party. Scottish unionism was very much about the importance of Scotland within Great Britain. Yeah. And that's now gone. And what's happened is there's been a gradual replacement of an imperial four nations identity with a British homogenous identity, because the only sustainable identity coming out of empire was, first of all, to make Britain more homogenous than in the imperial era people understood it to be. So many Victorian posters with pictures of Caledonia and Hibernia yeah. and all these yeah. folks hanging around Britannia. So that was the first thing. The second was that the, there was no foundational myth that was possible except standing alone in World War II. Yep. And that and the 4551 government with, with its nationalization agenda and no postcode lottery, unitary service structure, NHS that followed it, that yep. became the new, the new national myth. And that has had enormous difficulty with Scotland throughout. The attempt to extirpate Scottish difference has been going now for about 50 years. And some of it was accidental and some of it's deliberate and some of it's caused by global markets. Yeah. But, you know, it's unthinkable, for example, that take my own sector, that, you know, when Edinburgh was the first Scottish university to join a central admission system in the 1960s, the students com- protested. And indeed, when I went to university, there were still three outside it, outside a central admission system. So all of those things have all changed in a way to create a single UK-ness or the yeah. belief in a single UK-ness. And that has been, you know, left Scotland with less and less air to breathe. You know, we talked about the hubs and Scottish, uh, Scottish uh, representation externally earlier on. Uh, a century ago, you know, Scots were associating themselves across the globe in order to stop English people getting jobs, to put it bluntly. I'm not saying that was a good thing, but that's how Scottish associations worked in many of the uh, parts of the British Empire. They were there to, to prefer and to exclude. You, you know, the, the HSBC Bank, Yes, indeed. For, for many people, it was, it, was, it was seen as an acronym for Home for Scottish Bank Clerks. Because of <laughs> Absolutely. Well, <laughs> because so many Scots wielded power. Well, one of its founding lights, Thomas Sutherland, who actually was also chair of P&O, was, uh, was uh, uh, a fellow um, Aberdonian. But, uh, you know, one of the things he did was he was MP for Greenock for 20 years. And while he was MP for Greenock, he was chair of P&O and the Greenock Yards got 80, 80 ship contract. People would call it a conflict of interest today, but then it was just good business. Now, bearing in mind what you've just said, that, that toured the horizon about the uh, extirpation of the, the, the Scottish viewpoint, perhaps. What, what's your take on, because uh, David is asking this question, what is Professor Murray's Piddock's take on, on the Section 30 discussion, debate, the case? I think probably what it means is that, in the light of what you've been saying, is there any real value in pursuing that in the way that it's being pursued? If I was the British government, I wouldn't be responding to it on the basis of an SNP majority with the Greens or alone. I think this is very short term. There are real structural problems in keeping on just saying no. Again, the obvious thing to do, rather like you know, Labour and the Better Together era, is to allow a referendum and to rig it, probably not by having a threshold, but by having a third question. 
Yeah. The third question would be a great rig, especially if the third question contains, you know, some motherhood and apple pie vow style stuff. Yeah. That's a possibility. I don't, don't exactly rule that out, but the basic track record of the Conservative Party suggests they'll just say no. And they'll hang on saying no for as long as they possibly can. I realize there'll be a legal challenge. I personally will, or, or a number of legal challenges, and of course there's one already underway. Yeah. I personally think it's not very likely that judges in Scotland or in the Supreme Court will want to have the responsibility for making the political decision, for that's what it would be, whether or not there'd be a referendum. And I also think there are, there are very difficult issues here. So, I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of people are very passionate and want to have action really quickly. There are a lot, a lot of difficult issues. And one of them is that um, Scottish accession to the EU is definitely more at risk from Spain's veto without a Section 30 order or the equivalent. Whether they would accept, and they might accept, a legal route through, if that were to happen, that's possible. But they're obviously you know, having enormous difficulties themselves because fundamentally they didn't respect an earlier referendum in Catalonia. So um, it's yeah. the 2006 referendum that's a real problem here. That would be very, very interesting. I mean, one of the issues that that keeps coming up, and I'd like to go back to it, if I may, was your point about the Conservatives and the Unionists combining. When I talk to Conservative supporters, I sometimes get the impression, though they do retrench and go walk back from this, but there's been a strong suggestion on several occasions where people have said to me, they're not sure if Conservatives and the Unionists can remain bedfellows, particularly in the light of the democratic pressure of saying no, 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 to a Section 30. One of the pressure points will be how many people wish to remain Conservatives and Unionists who might have fallen into the category you described earlier of being Scottish Conservatives or Scottish Unionists, perhaps. Their vision is not a highly centralised state operating by diktat, and they might find that sufficiently uncomfortable to decide to do otherwise. What's your sense of that? Do you get any any feeling about that at all? Not sure that I've got enough evidence to reach a view about that. I tend to think that besieged organizations tend to hang together. And if yeah. we see this Conservative Unionist Party in Scotland as, as besieged, then the chances are it will hang together, whatever the internal tensions are. Of course, if it loses all its seats or you know is reduced to a very much uh, a marginal position, as has been the case before, uh, it may change its mind. I mean, the embracing of devolution by the Conservatives did help them uh, eventually after Mm. a few years. But one is never quite sure because, you know, one of the things that's been really interesting to me watching is is the way in which Labour has gone from uh, from centre stage to, you know, to the wings, to being uh, kicked into the orchestra stalls. And... (laughs) And and every every time you know they they're put even further on the back foot. They say exactly the same things, as if you know that the voters will awake from their collective delusion and rush back you know into the uh, the arms of the policies that they've been rejecting for for fifteen or twenty years. Yeah. It's very interesting because Henry McLeish saw the way the wind was blowing twenty years ago, and I have to say you know though you know really respect him for that. I think maybe he's kind of. Uh, too positive about the Federalist solution in terms of the fact he knows the workings of Westminster and so on, and that they're not very likely to entertain it. But, you know, nonetheless, he really did see, he he offered a way forward for the Labour Party yeah. and devolution 
and they didn't take it, and they've been in, and they've been suffering from that ever since. If you were to look ahead, as they say in the states, if you could take this chance to look down the pike <laughs> to the <laughs> end of 2021 and draw us a picture of Scotland and the UK and how you see things working out and developing, what would it be? I envisage providing the election happens on time and. I really don't have any idea why elections can't happen on time, even in the current circumstances, given what has happened elsewhere. There will be major political pressure in the autumn and that it will be resisted. And I think, as I said, I'm not convinced myself the legal cases will go through. So I think we may be in a heightened state of where we are now, which isn't very comfortable. And I appreciate nobody in particular listening to this wants to hear it, but that may be the case. So combined with pressure via the Internal Markets Bill and other areas on the Scottish government to keep it on the back foot. In these circumstances, I think it's very important that the Scottish government, in terms of talking horizons again, is as active abroad, not only with organisations and institutions and governments, uh, but with the diaspora, uh, whether a diasporic organisations of strength to plug into, and that is quite a few places, uh, as possible. And I don't mean pushing uh, straightforwardly an independence agenda or anything like that. I mean just getting getting Scotland and Scotland's position and take on things and outlook profiled in yeah. the world. It's very difficult to move forward without friends outside. And one of the lessons from Catalonia in 2017 is that they didn't have very many friends outside. Okay, it was very difficult for the EU to sanction that referendum. I appreciate all the difficulties. But what was very clear is they kind of expected people to say, oh, gosh, look, they want to leave Spain. Let's help them. Not a chance. There was no preparing of any real ground. Whereas if you look, you know, not a situation we want to be in or go back to, but if you look at the funding from U.S. bondholders of the Irish government or provisional government in the late teens and early 20s was really significant. Funding, engagement, profile, international interests, these things all matter. And they're all part of the pressure of the political process just as much and even more so than the passions and difficulties and desires that people feel in Scotland itself. That's very helpful, Murray. That's been very educational, if you'll excuse me. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Our time's almost up. A big thank you to Murray, obviously, and a big thank you to all of you, and thank you for your questions. As ever, we have a formidable list of guests lined up. Now, look out next week for child expert Sue Palmer. Uh, one of Sue's thoughts is that perhaps children should start school at seven and not at six. If you genuinely believe, as I do, that the future lies with our children, you really don't want to miss Sue Palmer next week. Her book is called Toxic Childhood. That's one of our books. And look out for the Constitution column. Uh, Dr. Elliot Boomer is writing it this week in the Sunday National. You should never miss Elliot column. It's, it's very worthwhile. And also, please support Indie Live. Remember, go to the Indie Live guide. It's called www.whatsonguide.scot because Indie Live is not just a TNT show. There's a whole bunch of offerings, and it's done on a shoestring with volunteers, and they do it because they love Scotland, they love you, and they want to deliver what they think might be helpful to you. So do support them. Uh, and remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Uh, you might like to learn, as of today, the UK suffered more COVID deaths in the last 24 hours, that's 1,041, than Australia has experienced since the start of the pandemic. So somebody somewhere is managing it reasonably well. 
Again, a big thank you to Murray. Thank you very much, Murray. And please, let's all keep in touch. Thank you again. Good night, everyone. Take care.